0: Just so that all of you know, uh, before I actually get into the sermon, is that um, uh, we have a new camera system. It works beautifully. It's high quality. And if you don't have a church wherever you are and you're watching and you want to make this your church, it is now uh, tenfold or a hundredfold better than the quality of the old uh, streaming online. And so we have our Sunday morning service, which begins Sarasota time at uh, 10 p.m. with the Prophecy Update about 11 or so for the uh, sermon, and then after that we take communion every single week, and uh, then after that we have a Bible study at um, uh, Thursday at 5 o'clock until 6.30. And so uh, those are all recorded as well, and everybody knows that, uh, so they're on YouTube, but if somebody uh, like the others that attend this church uh, you know, live, if they want to join that it is much better quality than it used to be. Anyway, having said that, before we get into the sermon, I want to read Psalm 144, and here's what it says. A Psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? or the Son of Man, that you are mindful of him. Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. But bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Search out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters. From the hand of foreigners whose mouth speak lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God, on a harp of ten strings. I will sing praises to you, the one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculpted in palace style, that our barns may be full supplying all kinds of produce, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields, that our oxen may be well-laden, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in our streets. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. I want you to know that the, the first verse, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, are the very words that I think of every single Monday morning as I'm at my uh, job before starting sermon typing. I say that to the Lord every Monday. Lord, prepare my fingers for the battle. Because coming to the the passages that we come to each week, it's almost like a battle. Lord, help me to win this battle because some of these things are so difficult to understand. And so while I'm talking to him, I always say those words to him, prepare my fingers for the battle, and then get onto the keyboard. And whatever he gives, that's what we get. So thanking the Lord for another sermon, not... Uh, Exodus 28, verses 15 through uh, 30. And this is entitled The Breastplate of Judgment. So uh, I'm in Genesis. I got to get an Exodus here. And uh, hold on one second. Exodus 28, starting in verse 15. You shall make the breastplate of judgment artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. You shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width, and you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be setting gold settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. You shall make the chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold. And you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings, which are on the ends of the breastplate. And the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod. And two other rings of gold you shall make and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod and so the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on his breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. There is a truth in the Bible that needs to be restated often, but which often goes unstated. God is just. When sin is committed, and all sin, judgment must be rendered upon that sin, If the God that we worship does not judge our sin, then he is not just, and we are worshiping the wrong God. However, there is a truth which takes away the scary part for us. Judgment can be rendered in a substitute. If someone steps forward and pays my speeding fine, thank you very much, then the demands of the law are met. This same truth works in our relationship with God as well. He is allowed that another, with a capital A, another, can take our place in judgment. But If that person has sin, then that judgment is not acceptable. This is why sacrificing babies does not atone for sin. Sin travels from father to child. A baby descended from Adam with a human father inherits his father's sin. Slaying a baby for atonement doesn't atone for sin. It simply commits another sin. But Jesus came, born of a woman, and yet his father is God. Thus, no sin was transferred to him. As he was born under the law, he still had to be obedient to that law. The record of his life shows that he was, in fact, obedient. And so in his death, he could be, and he, in fact, is a suitable substitute for the sons of Adam, you and I. He took the judgment that we deserve. Our text verse comes from Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Could it be that Paul's words are seen pictured in today's passage? The answer is yes. There is wonder and there is marvel in what we will look at today. Christ did the work. We receive the forgiveness. But even more, we are brought into sonship with our Heavenly Father because of Him. We are counted as precious gems reflecting His glory. It's all to be found in His superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through His word today. And may His glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the breastplate of judgment. It's verses 15 through 21. Verse 15, you shall make the breastplate of judgment. The hoshen, or breastplate, was introduced into the Bible in Exodus 25, verse 7, but no explanation was given of it at that time. Now, this most important part of the high priest's garments is described in minute, even exacting details. Here, a second word is used to describe it, hoshen mishpat, or the breastplate of judgment. Charles Ellicott notes that it was called the ornament of judgment on account of it containing the Urim and Thummim, whereby God's judgments were made known to his people. However, we'll see that more than just stones within this breastplate point to judgment. Its very dimensions and other aspects of it point to judgment as well. It will be used by the high priest when he is asked to seek the counsel of the Lord, when he is to render particular judgment in a case, and when he sits as a judge teaching the law. When controversies would arise, he could consult the breastplate. James Strong says that the word hoshen, translated here as breastplate, comes from an unused root, probably meaning to contain or sparkle, perhaps a pocket as holding the Urim and Thummim, or rich as containing gems. It is used only of this item in the entire Bible. Though the word breastplate is not an exact translation, it describes the place where it is located, and so it is an acceptable explanation for us. The Greek translation of the Old Testament calls it the logeon, meaning the oracle, because it is by this pouch that the Lord would answer inquiries which were made of him. A form of this word is used four times in the New Testament, logeon, when speaking of the oracles of God, meaning scripture itself. The word of God will transmit from the breastplate's contents when needed. Verse 15 continues. Artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it. Now, remember last week, the ephod is like the uh, waistcoat that he's wearing. And it was made of certain things, and this is to be made of the same type of material. The same words, maaseh choshev, or skillfully worked, that were used for both the artistic weaving of the cherubim on the veil of the tabernacle, and for the ephod are used here. Intricate care and fine detail is to be used in the weaving of this breastplate. It would have probably been woven by hand looms, which were brought by the people when they departed from Egypt. Verse 15 continues, of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, you shall make it. The colors here are exactly the same as that used for the ephod. They followed the same meaning as they did before. Divinity, royalty for the gold, The law is blue, royalty for the purple, which is a combination of blue and red, and then red, war, blood, and or judgment. And finally, righteousness for the woven linen. That was all described, and I explained that all from New Testament uh, concepts in previous sermons. Verse 16, it shall be doubled into a square. The shape of this breastplate will be square, the same as the brazen altar, and the same for the altar of incense, which has not yet been described. The brazen altar signified judgment. The incense altar will signify Christ's intercessory work for us. Both of these are seen in the breastplate, judgment and intercession. So it's like a stepping stone between the altar and the altar of incense. This is a very intricate part of what the high priest is going to be using during his ministry. Being square shows that these roles of judgment and intercession reach to the four corners of the earth without distinction and without interruption. The scope of the significance of the breastplate is without limits. Concerning this doubling over of the cloth, it's surprising how many scholars fail to see the reason for it. They say it is simply to strengthen the material to hold the weight of the stones which will be embroidered onto it. That has nothing to do with it. The reason is specifically and explicitly stated in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 8. Then he put the breastplate on him, and he put the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate. The breastplate serves as a pouch for the enigmatic Urim and Thummim, which are used by the high priest to discern God's will. Verse 16 going on, A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. The zaret, or span, is introduced into the Bible here. It's a rare word which will be seen just seven times. It comes from the word zara, which means to scatter. Thus it is the distance from the tip of the little finger to the end of the outstretched thumb, as if the fingers are scattered. If you take your hand in that fashion and place it on your arm at the tip of your middle finger and then do the same where your hand ended, you're going to see that it ends right at the elbow. In other words, a span is one half of a cubit and a cubit goes from here to here. It's the mother measurement. This is a half of a cubit. Verse 17, and you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. There will be four rows of stones, three to a row or 12 individual stones. The word for row here, which is tour, is introduced into the Bible. It comes from an unused root, meaning to arrange in a regular manner. Thus, the idea of a row is the result. These stones will be put into settings in a manner similar to those on the ephod. These settings were probably of filigree work, as we saw last week. Each stone had its own beautifully made setting to hold it in place. The number four here is the preferred number for the arrangement. Four is the number of God's creative works. E.W. Bollinger defines it as the number of material completeness, hence it is the world number, and especially the city number. Whereas the four rows speak of creation, the three stones per row indicate that which is solid, real, substantial, complete, and entire. It speaks of divine completeness or perfection. The stones are not arbitrary, and none of them will be the same makeup. Each will be unique. Verse 17 continues, The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The first row of stones in Hebrew are Odem u Barakhet. The identity of almost all of these 12 stones that are named in this particular passage cannot be precisely determined. Many of them are introduced into the Bible here in this passage, and some of them are only used a very minimal number of times in Scripture the color of the stones can often be determined by the root of the word. For example, the first stone in Hebrew is Odem. This is the same as the word Adom, which is first used in Exodus 25, verse 5, concerning the ram skins dyed red. It is a red stone. But exactly which is unknown? Some say carnelian, some say sardius, some say rose quartz, and some say ruby, and so on. We know that it is not a ruby for the same reason as the next stone, which is Pitta, which The New King James Version translates as topaz. These are stones which can be eliminated based on their hardness. In other words, it was not possible at this time in human history to engrave on a topaz. Therefore, both the King James Version and the New King James Version and any others which say topaz should get a demerit for their translation of the second stone. The same is true with ruby for the first stone. It's too hard to carve, and so there's a demerit there as well. The final stone, the barraquette, comes from the word barak. has nothing to do with Barack Obama, okay? But it comes from the word barak, which means flashing or lightning. This tells us pretty much nothing of value in determining what this particular stone is. As you can see, one must look at what is logical and possible concerning these individual stones. In the end, the colors can usually be known. At times, good guesses can be made, But because even the finest scholars of all of antiquity and even modern times cannot agree on what they are, it is unwise to be dogmatic on what they really are, only on what they are not. Verse 18, the second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The second word, sapir is the same name as that which was used to describe the pavement under the feet of the Lord when Moses and the leaders of Israel had their meal on Mount Sinai after the ratification of the covenant. There, it probably meant sapphire. The same word is used again here, but it is not the same stone. It is probably one that is similar to it, though. The third stone, Yahalom, comes from the word halam, which means to hammer or to strike down, and thus it is a stone noted for its hardiness. But it is not a diamond. It is recognized that neither the sapphire nor the diamond could be engraved at this time in history. The King James Version and the New King James Version once again get two demerits. Verse 19, the third row, adjusting an agate and an amethyst. The second stone here, called an agate, comes from an unused root meaning flame, and so it is a gem known for its sparkle. However. As flames divide into flashes, it could be a stone with lines running through it. All translations agree on the word agate, though. The third stone, achlama, comes from the word kalam, which means to dream. Thus it is a dream stone. All translations say amethyst. Verse 20, And the fourth row a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. Ve tarshish The first stone, Tarshish, is the same as the name of a son of Javan, who is noted in Genesis 10, verse 4. It is also the name of a Benjamite, later in the Bible, and a Persian noble. And it is the name of a port on the Mediterranean Sea, the place to which Jonah intended to flee during his exciting adventure. He never made it. The stone can only be guessed as to what it is. The second stone is the Shoham. It was first seen in Genesis 2, verse 12, and it is the same stone which is used for the shoulder stones on the ephod. And as it's the middle of the bottom row, you have a little triangle being made here. I'm not sure of what the significance is, but it's been grinding in my head all week because of that. Anyway, the third stone is yashafe. It comes from an unused root, meaning to polish, some suppose it to be the Jasper because of the same general sounding of the name Yashape and Jasper. J is only in English; it should be Jasper, and so you can really hear it there. Anyway, verse 20 continues: They shall be set in gold settings. As I noted above, these were probably settings very similar to those on the ephod and the shoulder pieces they would most likely be of gold filigree. Verse 21, And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. The same terms are used here as in verse 28-11. The pituach, or engravings, is a noun which indicates what an engraver makes. It comes from the verb patach, which means to appear. And so you get the idea of the work of the engraver's hands appearing as engravings on these stones. The other word, kotam, indicates a signet. The work here is to be exceptionally fine and detailed. Each name of the sons of Israel is to be clearly and precisely engraved on one of these 12 stones, according to their name and according to their tribe. Thus, the stone will stand as representative of the tribe on the breastplate before the Lord beautiful stones lustrous and bright each unique and worthy of a place of respect carefully sculpted and polished fitted just right in them no mark can the greatest lapidary detect each engraved like a signet bearing a name one of the sons of israel a spot upon the honored plate each can claim a sign of the redeemed each stone does tell and like the stones those redeemed by the lord are precious in a sight no flaw in them is shown This is how the redeemed are noted in the word. Yes, this is what the Bible to us makes known. Our second thought today is the judgment of the children of Israel. It's verses 22 through 30. Verse 22, you shall make chains for the breastplate at the end like braided cords of pure gold. The unscholarly scholars at Cambridge, I always bring them up because they're very liberal and they always have something negative about the Bible to say. They say the chains like cords are those mentioned in verse 14 so that the verse is really superfluous. Nothing is superfluous in scripture. They receive a peanut head award for their comment. (laughs) These chains appear to be the same chains mentioned before, but now we are seeing what they are used for. They are to be fastened to the shoulder settings on the ephod, which are separately made from the breastplate. However, Though the ephod and the breastplate are actually two implements, we now see that they are incomplete, one without the other. It's very important to understand this. Verse 23, And you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. The word ring here is the same word used to describe the rings that were used for inserting the poles into the Ark of the Covenant and the Table of Showbread. Tabaat. This comes from the verb taba, which means to sink. This then gives the idea of a signet ring, which is sunk into clay or into wax to make a seal. From this comes the idea of any ring. These rings are to be placed on the two upper corners of the breastplate. The chains would then be passed through the rings and secured to the settings of the shoulder pieces. Unlike the chains, it should be noted that these rings are just like the rings for the ark and the table. The adjective tahor, or pure, is not used for them. When you see that word, there's a reason why God either includes it or doesn't include it, and the rings do not have that adjective attached. Verse 24, Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate. This verse shows clearly that only two chains were made. These then correspond to the chains which were mentioned in verse 14. This is further understood from the details of the actual completion of the work in Exodus 39. Just two chains are made, having been mentioned two separate times for emphasis and to ensure that the details are exactingly followed. One end of them is to be attached to the two rings, which are then attached to the breastplate, Verse 25, and the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fashion to the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. What is being said is that the breastplate will be attached to the two settings on the shoulder piece so that it will hang down from them. In essence, they are being combined into a single unit. Everything is being tied together into one. Again, neither the settings nor the rings are described by the adjective pure. Only the chains are. Verse 26, you shall make two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod. Two more rings are to be made of gold. These are to be on the two lower corners of the ephod. However, they will be on the inner side, which is the side turned toward the ephod. The word translated as edge here is safah. It means lip. The material for the breastplate has been folded in half. These rings are attached to the inside half or lip. Hence, they will be out of sight. Verse 27 and two other rings of gold you shall make and put them on the two shoulder straps they're saying it's on the shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod that is incorrect this translation is not correct the translation here says on the two shoulder straps because the same word katef, is used here that was used in verses 7 and 12 from last week however the word in this case means side and it is speaking of the front half of the ephod not the shoulder piece. Several translations got this right. There will be two gold rings woven into the front half of the ephod itself on the inside of it, one on the left side of the breastplate and one on the right side. Here is how Webster's translation translates this verse. And two other rings of gold thou shalt make, and shall put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath. So it's on the ephod, not on the breastplate, towards the fore part of it over against the other coupling thereof, above the curious girdle of the ephod. It doesn't go up here, it goes down here. The reason for this is explained in the next verse. And I gotta tell you, these are very complicated verses. It took a lot of time to get through these, but it's very precise what we're being shown in pictures of Christ here. I want you to know that. Verse 28, they shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod, using a blue cord. ...so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod... ...and so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod... ...in other words, so it doesn't swing out. You've got it attached here, or you've got to have it attached down here... ...or it will swing out when he bends over. We can't have that, because if it touched one of the holy things... ...then he could die, all right? A blue patil, or cord, will tie the rings of the breastplate... ...to the rings of the front half of the ephod. As none of the four rings are visible... It implies that the blue cord is also not visible. And yet the details are so specific and precise. Every time you come to something like this, you have to say, why would God mandate this if nobody's ever going to see it? It's because he wants us to see Jesus Christ, his son, in these pictures. A picture is obviously being made for us to think on and to contemplate. This word patil comes from the verb patal, which means to twist, It is used in the context of wrestling when you twist together as people, or being astute when you twist ideas together to come to a conclusion. It is the cord here which binds the ephod and the breastplate, keeping them united, as it were, as one. Verse 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. With the breastplate of judgment secure and with the names of the sons of Israel right over his heart, the high priest would bear their names as a memorial before the Lord continually. Charles Ellicott describes the obvious significance for the earthly high priest. He says the high priest was to be wholly identified with the people, to be one with them in affection, no less than in action, to bear their names on his shoulders, as we saw last week, as supporting them and wrestling for them, while he also bore their names ...on his heart as loving them and feeling for them. Thus he was continually to present before God a twofold memorial of his people... ...and to make a sort of double appeal on the one hand to God's power... ...and on the other hand to his mercy and loving kindness. Verse 30, and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim. Introduced here are two of the most enigmatic instruments to be named... ...for all of the associated religious rites and instructions... The word Yerim is the plural of the word Ur, or fire. Thus it means lights. It is found just seven times in scripture. The word Tumim is the plural of the word Tom, or integrity. Thus it means perfections, or that which is blameless, or innocent. It is found just five times in scripture. Together they are literally translated lights and perfections. Interestingly, this verse uses the exact same expression, Venatata El, Or, and you shall put in, that was used in Exodus 25, verse 16, concerning putting the tablets of the testimony into the Ark of the Covenant. And in both cases, it is Moses, or he who draws out, who puts them in. A direct tie is being made between these two separate accounts once again. What the Urim and Thummim actually did, what they were, or how they were used, is unknown. But we do know that they were used for inquiring of God. This is seen, for example, in Ezra chapter 2, where it says this. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. And therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. In other words, you've got people that are coming back from the exile, and they say, well, we're of the priestly line. And they're excluded from the priesthood. Why? They say, and the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. They'll use these to determine God's will. Whatever they were and whatever they did, it appears that Moses was already aware of them. No note of explanation is given concerning them, and so he already knew about them. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 8, they are considered the greatest of glory to the tribe of Levi. In the Song of Moses, here's what it says. And of Levi, he said, Let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Massah, and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. Verse 30 continues, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Along with the names of the sons of Israel, the Urim and Thummim are considered important enough to be thought of as being over Aaron's heart. What would be so important about them that this would be the case? Verse 30 finishes with these words, so Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. On the breastplate in full display were the stones representing the children of Israel. On the stones were their names, thus designating the tribes. And within the breastplate itself were the Urim and Thummim. Contained within all of this was the thought of rendered judgment. This was to be continually before the face of the Lord. Chains of gold running from breastplate to ephod. Rings of gold used to connect them together as one. A blue cord to keep the breastplate secure we have been showed. But when worn it remains unseen. Why was this done? lights and perfections hidden away kept in a pouch behind the fiery stones and over the heart what mysteries do they tell who can say and when they are used what truths will they impart the mysteries of these things brings curiosity to us we long to see the meaning hidden away from our eyes somehow we know they point to jesus and so their meaning to us please surprise our third thought today is pictures of christ The ephod, the memorial stones, and the breastplate are all united as one piece, even though they have been described separately. The symbolism of the memorial stones from last week wasn't fully given, right? I partially overlooked it in order to complete this passage first. So I want you to know that's why last week I kind of left you hanging. There were two memorial stones made of the same type of stone. Two implies a difference and yet a confirmation of something. For example, there is the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. They contrast, and yet they confirm that he is the incarnate word of God. There's the Old Testament, and there is the New. They contrast law and grace, but they confirm the entirety of the word of God. As there were two memorial stones on two separate shoulders, they contrast, and yet they confirm a whole. Six on each shoulder shows the number of man. Thus, they picture the scope of humanity. Jew and Gentile being born by Christ. He bore our sufferings and burdens before his father, reconciling us to him. Together they equal 12 or that of government. The breastplate itself was to be fashioned of the same material as the ephod. The materials and colors carry the same meaning as each time that they have been used. They picture Christ's deity and royalty for the gold, his fulfillment of the law for the blue, His royalty for the purple, which is a combination of blue and red, and his judgment for the red. Finally, the woven linen is a picture of his righteousness. The square shape of the breastplate matches the square brazen altar and thus signifies judgment. But it also matches the altar of incense and thus it signifies petition and intercession. Its size introduced a new word to us, zareth or span. It comes from another word, zara, which as I said means to scatter. This word is consistently seen to indicate judgment in the Bible, such as scattering the people in exile or winnowing grain, which is in itself a picture of judgment, such as in Isaiah 41, verse 16, which says this, You shall winnow them, judge. The wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Thus, the size and shape of the breastplate indicates judgment, just as its name states, The breastplate of judgment. The stones on the breastplate are 12 in number, but are listed as four rows of three each. And so they signify all of the created who have been redeemed. They signify the complete divine plan for redemption. As they total 12, they signify the perfection of government. All of these numbers have been explained in the past. Unlike the shoulder stones, which were two, like but separate stones signifying Jew and Gentile, these are 12 individual stones united into one hole on the breastplate. They then are what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 10 with these words, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Though there is a difference, there is now no distinction. We are no longer divided. We are all one as the Lord intercedes for us before his father. Arthur Pink explains this to us with these words, On the jewels were inscribed the names of Israel's 12 tribes. Therefore, what we have foreshadowed here is Christ as our great high priest, bearing on his heart, sustaining and presenting before God his blood-bought people. There is a slight distinction to be drawn from what we have here and that which is set forth in Exodus 28, verses 9 through 12. There, too, we have the names of Israel's tribes borne by the high priest before God. But there they are seen resting upon his shoulders, whereas here... They rest upon his heart. In the one, it is the strength or power of Christ engaged on behalf of his helpless people. In the other, it is his affections exercised for them. Christ bore all of the sins of all people, Jew and Gentile, represented by the two like but separate stones on his shoulders. Now we are united as one as he exercises his mediatorial role for all without distinction. The engravings of the names upon the stones is specific. It is to be as a signet. These words imply eternal security. The name is engraved on the stone itself. It shouts out, This is a son of Israel. The believer standing before God never changes. The judgment has been wrought by another, and so we are inscribed once and forever within the stone of God's governmental perfection. Likewise, each stone is set in gold filigree settings. We are attached, if you will, by the Lord through an act of faith in his accomplished work. This is exactly seen in the pure gold chains attached to the gold rings. The chains of verse 22 are described as braided cords of pure gold. The word for cords is abot. It is something that binds something together. It is used in a negative way in Isaiah 5 with these words. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if it were with a cart rope. That word there, abode, However, in verse 22, they are of pure gold. It is the same word, tahor, which is used to describe the gold of the ark, of the mercy seat, of the menorah, and of the other implements which picture Christ. In this, we are literally chained to him as our high priest through his perfect and unstained work. Let us now remember the significant point that the adjective pure is lacking from the golden rings and from the settings. Why would this be? The reason is that we are saved by an act of grace through faith. When we receive his work, which he bore on our behalf, we are accepted into his kingdom. We move from the burden of his shoulders to the place above his heart. However, it is the pure gold of his work which saves us. Our faith may be weak and it may be imperfect, but his work which saves us is not. Thus the chains representing what he did for us have the adjective pure. The rings representing our faith do not. And yet our faith not being pure is pictured by a ring. There's no beginning or end to it. Thus the exercising of our faith in the work of Christ, no matter how shallow, results in an endless security because of what he did. God asks for faith from his faithless creatures. And so just a little bit will do. The picture we are given is astonishingly exact in how it presents our salvation. Concerning these stones, it has been seen that we simply don't know what most of them were. This is for a reason. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. The focus is not on us. It's on the Lord. As adopted children of God, we are precious in his sight, just as the stones were precious in their nature. There is no internal illumination from these stones. Rather, only when the light of Christ shines on us do we shine out or reflect the radiant beauty that God has given us. In our previous state of darkness, that was unseen and it was wasted. But in Christ, we go from being justified to being glorified. The light of Christ radiates off of us and illuminates who we truly are meant to be. When we stand in God's presence someday, we will see what he already sees because of Christ. We may not feel very radiant at times, I tell you I don't most of the time, but to God we shine forth in a dazzling display of beauty. The stones then, regardless of their actual identity, are fully known to God. As Paul says to Timothy, in which perfectly resembles this thought, nevertheless the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Another thought about these stones is that they certainly came from a variety of areas. Some may have come from a particular land, others from another, some from the ocean, and some from the river. However, they were all incorporated into the one breastplate. So it is with the redeemed of God. We are all different. We may come from the farthest corners of the earth, and we may look completely different than one another, but we all reflect the glory of the Lord in a marvelous and unique way. None is to be truly exalted above another. Paul sums this thought up very well in Romans 12 with these words, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another." Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We're all precious stones in the breastplate of the Lord. When God the Father looks at Christ, our high priest, he sees on the very heart of his son his redeemed people whom he purchased with his own blood. God could no more reject us now than he could reject his own son. This is the intimate position that we now hold before the father of heavenly lights. It is pictured in the breastplate as individual stones of various types and colors and attributes. However, someday when we are glorified, those distinctions will be entirely erased. This is the promise from Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The very name of the breastplate, it being the breastplate of judgment, conveys a purposeful intent. It is as a voice calling out in the presence of God, judgment has been rendered here. These are mine and they are secure because of what I did. For this reason, it is called a memorial before the Lord continually. The Lord could no more forget us than he could forget his own agonizing passion on the hill of Calvary. We stand justified not because we deserve it, but because he has earned it for us. Judgment is complete. We are secure. Our text verse of the day I asked, could this be pictured in today's breastplate of judgment from the writings of Paul? Sure enough, you see it is. The placement of the breastplate above the heart calls to mind the memorable words of the Song of Solomon. Set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement fire. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. The love of the Lord for the people he has redeemed is reflected in the placement of the breastplate. As far as the other four gold rings and the blue cord, those were kept unseen, hidden, as it were, from sight. And yet the details given are so exacting. The cord of blue, as we've seen a million times, signifies the law. We've seen it a million times already. The rings, again, bear the same significance. They are emblems of our faith. In all, there are six rings, six being the number of man, and yet we are securely tied to our great high priest by his accomplishment of the law for us. We trust in his work in fulfillment of it, and we are united to him. Our faith is tested, and it often fails, but we are bound to Christ by his fulfillment and completion of the law. Peter's words exactingly reflect. This, concerning the gold rings, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. The blue cord and the rings aren't seen, because they reflect our faith in what is unseen We believe that Christ fulfilled the law for us on our behalf and we are saved. In our attempt to fulfill the law, there is only death, open and visible to all. But in Christ's fulfillment of it for us, the law is concealed, no longer to harm us. This is the same as the tablets of the law being hidden inside of the ark. Our wrestling with the law is ended and our misdeeds are hidden away. Instead, we are held fast to the high priest by our faith in his works This is seen in Paul's words to the Corinthians with these words. He says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But how can we be sure that the symbolism on this is correct? The answer is in what the two final things mentioned in this passage signify, the Urim and Thummim. They are lights and perfections. But understanding what they point to requires looking at the etymology of the words as well as what Moses does with them. There is a direct connection being made between the ark and the breastplate. Both are containers of the law. The tablets were placed by Moses in the ark and the Urim and Thummim were placed by him in the breastplate as well. These two items are what provide the word of the Lord to the people and they were used to render judgment for the people. Both of these functions are the same as the law. Urim means lights. It comes from ur, which means fire, which corresponds to the word or meaning light. Numerous times in the Bible, the law of the Lord is equated to light, or the judgments of the Lord are also equated to light. Three examples I'd like to give you are these. From Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light reproofs of instruction are the way of life. From Isaiah 51, four, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for the law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light to the peoples. And from Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So that's the urim or or The thumim comes from the word tom, which corresponds then to tamim, or perfection, and thus being blameless. This is seen in the following two verses. From Psalm 18, verse 30, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust him. And then from Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In these and other examples, we can find that the law of the Lord is what is pictured in the Urim and Thummim. It thus has the same significance as the tablets within the ark. Christ fulfilled the law and it was secreted away under the mercy seat. He thus embodies the law and his blood covers the sins of the law for his people. In placing the Urim and Thummim behind the stones representing God's people and within the breastplate of judgment that is connected to the ephod by a blue cord attached to a gold rings, it signifies that our faith in his work is what justifies us. If we need to consult God, we do it through Christ. Matthew Henry gives us a splendid analogy of these in regards to the Urim and Thummim. He says, now Christ is our oracle. By him, God, in these last days, makes known himself and his mind to us. He is the true light, the faithful witness, the truth itself, and from him we receive the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth. The truly amazing thing about this is such minute detail was given for things that were completely unseen and they were to remain unseen and yet they perfectly describe what Christ has done for us. In Christ we are safe, we are secure, and we are so forever. We stand justified by faith apart from deeds of the law because he has accomplished those deeds for us. It's all seen in these ancient symbols that until an hour ago, probably most of you had no idea at all what they were saying. Isn't that right? But now you can see once again how minutely the plan of redemption is revealed in these ancient pictures. What a marvel. If we must close, and close we must, let it be with a thought concerning the gold rings. Our faith is reckoned as good as gold to God, even if it is not pure gold. We weaken at times, We question God's plan and his goodness, but when we get into that desperate pit, let us remember also the chains that secure us. They are chains of the purest gold. They are the deeds of Christ holding us fast to himself. What he looks for is faith. We demonstrate it, and he accepts it. The eternal ring tells us that we are his. Let us remember that now and always, all right? And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd like right now to just stop and I'd like to tell you that these pictures are not mistakes by God. He wasn't just arbitrarily showing us stuff in these Old Testament passages so that we could be bored through a lot of reading. He was showing us this because he loves us enough for us to dig into this word and to minutely analyze it to find Christ, his son, who hung on the cross of Calvary. And the Bible says that we are separated from God completely and entirely. There is a complete rift between us because of sin. Our first father sinned. He did it back here. Time is going this way and we can't go and undo what he did. And so we're stuck in this pit of sin. But Christ came from the eternal realm, outside of time, space, and matter. And he stepped into our finite realm. And he says, I can take care of this for you. The wages of sin is death and all of sin and all fall short of the glory of God. But the good news is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Our Lord that's what God came to do was to send a son into the stream of sin and corruption and say I will handle this problem and then if you put your trust in me all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved that's that pure gold chain right there Christ's work on our behalf in the ring is our little bit of faith it may not be pure gold but it's eternal you were talking about eternal salvation and you questioned it maybe I'm telling you what you go to the Old Testament and the answers are there it is eternal salvation for all who call on the name of the Lord. There's going to be some surprises. People that have walked away from the faith and say, I don't believe anymore. And they're going to be up there. They're going to have to face the Lord that they denied. Go to the poem of uh, Paul and Timothy, and he explains it once again in the New Testament. It is eternal. Even the book of Hebrews, the author of eternal salvation. And it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that we receive the moment we believe the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit or guarantee. Well, if he gives that to us and then he takes it away, it wasn't a very good guarantee. It was a pretty crummy guarantee, and that's not a very reliable God. But the pure gold chains show us that we are eternally saved by just a little act of faith. Maybe when we were three or maybe right now, you've never called on Christ and said, I need you. I'm in a pit of sin and my life is messed up and I want you to fix it for me and fix it he will. You don't fix your life and then go to the doctor. You say, doctor, I need help and he fixes you. Our closing verse is from Psalm 119. It's verse 11. See if it matches our passage today. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Next week, we're going to take a little diversion from Exodus. What does the Bible say about our future? Even the Old Testament knows. It's entitled The Rapture, Old Testament Types and Shadows. That'll be our little diversion sermon for a while, and then we'll get back into uh, (laughs) Exodus the week after that. And I will tell you, as I say, every single week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? We have a deep ocean ahead of us. It's called death. Guess what? Next week is gonna explain what happens someday when he parts those waters and leads us right into his presence. I can't wait. Our poem today, based on these verses that we just looked at, is called The Breastplate of Judgment. Just for the two ladies that are making a visit today, I make a poem out of all the passages. So we've got a whole poem of Genesis, and we've got one coming in Exodus, and also in the Book of Ruth, which we did a little diversion over to the Book of Ruth. But here we go. If you follow along in the new King James Version, it's almost identical. Just a little poetry to make it sound good. You shall make the breastplate of judgment, artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. You shall make it as I have now showed. It shall be doubled into a square, you see. A span shall be its length, and a span its width shall be. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones, as I will show. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper, they shall be set in gold settings. No detail shall be missed. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engravings of a signet as well. Each one with its own name, certainly, according to the 12 tribes, they shall be. You shall make chains at the end for the breastplate, like braided cords of pure gold, as I now state. And you shall make two rings for the breastplate of gold, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate, just as you are told. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings, which are on the ends of the breastplate, so you shall accomplish these things. And the other two ends of the braided chains, you shall fasten to the two settings as I relay, and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front, just as I say. You shall make the two rings of gold, and put them on the two ends of the breastplate, as showed, on the edge of it, as you are told, which is on the inner side of the ephod. And two other rings of gold you shall make, and put them on the two shoulder straps, please understand, underneath the ephod towards its front, right at the seams above the ephod's intricately woven band. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the ephod's rings using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod, so do these things. And so the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod, this is the reason for what you have been showed. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart, so shall it be, when he goes in before the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim according to my word, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. For this reason, these things I do now tell. How marvelous are the details, O God, precious and sublime, are the things hidden in your word. Help us for all our days, as in this life we trod, to search them out, seeking Christ our Lord. And through him we praise you for all that you have done, for in him it is finished, and in him the victory is won. Glory to you, O King of the ages, for the marvelous splendor found in your words, pages. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father. I'm almost in tears today over the beauty of your passage. It is just so absolutely wonderful to see what you have showed us in this seemingly obscure breastplate that is just read very quickly and passed over. And then yet when we look closely, we're right over your heart. The stones picture us, somebody from Japan, somebody from the Philippines, somebody from Nigeria, somebody from Alaska, somebody from Sarasota, Florida, all unique and all precious in your sight. But without your light shining onto us, we just remain dark and hidden. But when we stand before you, the glory shines out and we can be who you want us to be. Thank you for that. Thank you that the Holy Spirit will illuminate what we do in your presence. How good you are to allow that in our fallen lives, in lives that are wrought with sin and decay, things that we should never do wrong and yet we do almost willfully forgive us of that. Lord God, we love you and we praise you. We pray for safe travels for Jim today. We pray for safe travels for Paul and Elaine and uh, happy graduation for Darla's family and for Craig's uh, continued uh, radiation therapy. We pray for him as well. And for Arlena, who's just too tired to come today, Lord. For Sy's continued uh, healing on her eyes and for Linda's hip and for everybody else that's facing some sort of trial of one type or another, whether it's financial or or physical or emotional or mental or family trials, I would pray that you would uplift them and hold them and let them know that they are secure by the chain, even if they feel despondent and away from you. We're as close as your heart. How good you are to us, O God. We love you and we praise you and we commit the Lord's table to you in just a moment. And we do it in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Okay, Uh, we get the uh, instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and uh, there Paul read us these wonderful words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it with these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well with these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The Body and the Blood of the Lord Jesus Christ The Body and the Blood of the Lord Jesus Christ The Body and the Blood of the Lord Jesus Christ Brother Roy, The Body and the Blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. I, uh, For the first time, I think, ever since we moved into this building three years ago, I wore short, sleeve, short sleeves today because it was just so hot and muggy. And then we have guests show up. You know, usually I'm wearing a tie. And, anyway, but uh, I hope it looks okay. Uh, my, I try to look respectable for preaching, but today I just, it's just, I went out to take that sunrise photo and it was just muggy my robe. Oh, that's okay. I uh, Anyway, um, uh, just so that you all know, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again because Cindy and uh, Jeff and Pat have showed up, that I have lots more books in another box back there. Take any you want, but don't bring it back. If you take a book, <laughs> give it to somebody else. I'm trying to get rid of the books not have them, it, it's not, you know, so please. And um, there are also speakers for a computer. I got three sets of them, and one of them's really good. But anyway, if you want them, take them. If not, I'll end up recycling them. I'll just cut off the cords and throw the speakers away. But um, anyway, um, uh, also we've got a couple nice cakes and back, some fruit. Please take some time, fellowship, and uh, uh, just uh, get to know each other a little better. And uh, before you depart, if you have time, and uh, let's say a quick prayer, and we'll be done. Yes. Glorious heavenly Father, it is so wonderful to be in your presence. Thank you for this Lord's table where we can. Remember the death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ and that he has promised to come once again. And that's why we're taking this as in memorial of what he did and in anticipation of what he will do. May that day be soon, Lord. May it be soon when you come. I hope I never get to preach that rapture sermon. I hope that you come that quickly. Sweep us out of here. But should it be another week, we'll do our best for you and to honor your word and to glorify you through it. And during the interim week, help each one of us to live holy lives acceptable in your presence, not faltering, but when we do, we know that we're already forgiven because of the work of Christ when we moved from his shoulders to his heart. And we love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen.